0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter fifteen. We're looking at verses twenty-one through twenty-eight together this morning. Some years ago, on a hot
1: summer day in South Florida, a little boy decided to go for a swim in the old swimming hole behind his house. In a hurry to dive into the cool water, he ran out the back door, leaving behind shoes, shocks, socks, and a shirt as he went. He flew into the water, not realizing that as he swam toward the middle of the lake, an alligator was swimming toward the shore. His mother in the house was looking out the window and saw the two as they got closer and closer together. In utter fear, she ran toward the water, yelling to her son as loudly as she could. Hearing her voice, Little boy became alarmed and made a U-turn to swim toward his mother. It was too late. Just as he reached her, the alligator reached him. From the dock, the mother gro- grabbed her little boy by the arms as the alligator snatched his legs. Then it became an incredible tug-of-war between the two. The alligator was much stronger than the mother,
0: but the mother was too much, too passionate to let go. A farmer
1: happened to drive by, heard her screams, raced from his truck, grabbing his gun, took careful Lane and shot the alligator. Remarkably, weeks and weeks in the hospital, the little boy survived. His legs were extremely scarred by the vicious attack of the animal. The newspaper reporter who interviewed the boy after the trauma asked if he would show him his scars. Well, of course, the little boy lifted up his pant leg. And then with obvious pride, he said to the reporter, but look at my arms. I have great scars on
0: my arms too. I have them because my mom wouldn't let go. And on his arms were the scars from the deep scratches
1: where his mother's fingernails would dig deep into his flesh because she was not going to let go of the boy she loves. Came across that illustration. I think it really captures a mother's love. We might have scars on our bodies this morning.
0: Our veterans come back with not just physical scars, but Psychological scars as well. As
1: believers in Christ, we know that Jesus will never let go. Not because of any scars on our bodies, but because of the scars on His. And today we're going to look at a mother's passion to save her daughter and her faith in Jesus. We will start by looking at the story as a whole in context. And then we'll consider this mother in particular as we look at traits of a godly mother. So let's read the text together. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew 15. It says, Jesus went away from there the Jew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David! My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But He did not answer her a word. And His disciples came and implored Him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before Him, saying, Lord, help me! And He answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Verse 28, Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once, or it might be rendered in your translation immediately. So soon as Jesus spoke the word, her daughter was healed. Now I admit some text in this seems a little harsh at first, but hopefully um, I can paint you just a little different picture than that. We see right from the get-go that Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you go back to chapter 14. In verse 13 up to where we started verse 21 you realize that Jesus was ministering in the area around the Sea of Galilee. He had fed the 5000, he had walked on the water calling Peter to come out to him. And he ended up on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there there was a delegation of Pharisees and some scribes from Jerusalem that was going to test him while he was there. But he needed a break. He needed some time with his disciples to instruct them. So he headed to an area outside Jewish territory around the cities of Tyre and Sidon. These are port cities that would be in parts of Lebanon and Syria today. Tyre was about 35 miles, and Sidon being about 60 miles northwest of Galilee. They were not running away, but they needed time alone. If you look at the parallel account in Matthew, I'm, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30, it tells us that Jesus wanted to go and not let anyone know where He was going. But I have to paint a picture here that any self-respecting Pharisee or scribe would not have followed Jesus there. Because Tyre and Sidon were considered the stronghold of Gentile sinfulness. It was right in pagan territory, if you will. No good Jew would find himself in that place. They avoided it at all costs. Jesus even condimented on this when rebuking the cities in Galilee at Matthew 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I don't want to camp out too much here, but I have to let you know. For the first century Jew to hear that, Jesus is saying those people over there that are pagans, that you look down upon, that they've been known for their sinfulness, informality, if I would have done the same miracles that I did around you, they would have believed who I am and have repented long ago. That's like a bad comment to make about the so-called people of God that He was there around them performing these miracles. They knew about the Messiah, but failed to recognize who He was. And if He said, I went over to this pagan place that you don't think they know what's going on, they would have recognized who I am. In other words, these cities were more open to the miracles than the cities in which He did most of His ministry around. The Jewish people. Yeah, Jesus was taking a break. He needed a break, and we always take a break from time to time. But Jesus never took a break from people in general terms. What I mean by that, he never took a break from ministry, helping those that needed help. And he never took a break from being who he is. Notice I said is, not was. He is alive, he's at the right hand of the Father even now. So he is. But when he went around this earth, he never stopped being who he was. And some of us cannot wait to go on vacation this year. And I'm one of them. I'm tired of being cooped up with my family. Yeah, I said it. There. And so are you. And if you say no, you're lying. Got to get some time away. Let me tell you, I know firsthand there's a lot of people getting away. But when you take a vacation, do you leave your Christianity behind? Or do you leave worship behind? Now, I'll be honest with you. Some, If I take a Sunday off, yes, sometimes Tammy and I, we love the beach. Our best vacation, sitting on the beach, absolutely nothing all day long, just sit there and watch the waves come in. We may have a devotional there. But I also like going to another house of worship because I can go in there and I have no responsibility whatsoever. I can sit down and hear the Word, hear the Word proclaimed, hear the song and singing. By the way, you guys sounded real good this morning. But I encourage you, don't leave who you are behind. Don't take a vacation from yourself. Because as you travel, you never know who you're going to come across. That's a divine appointment. And though you may not lead that person to faith in Christ, you give them an encouraging word. A pat on the back. A smile. You never know. We never know what seeds we are planting on this side of heaven. Now it's interesting, while Jesus was trying to get away, and in Mark, the parallel account, he said he did want no one to know he's coming. In this pagan if you will place the word gets out that Jesus is in town apparently this, fair, this foreign territory have evidently heard about Jesus and they knew who he was this Canaanite woman says so a Canaanite woman from that region came and began to cry out have mercy on me Lord and listen to this son of David Now, if you look in your Bible, someone will have like a little subtitle above the paragraph where it starts the story. It says, Sarah Phoenician woman. That means she lived in the area of Phoenicia that were ruled by the Syrians of that time. But Matthew uses the word Canaanite. That's a general Old Testament term for the enemy of the people of God. They were the ones in the promised land when they crossed over, they had to conquer to get the land. And they were known for their sinfulness and immorality. Now look at this picture Matthew's painting for us. Now ladies, no disrespect, but back in those days, ladies were a second class citizen. And not only that, she's now a Canaanite. But her daughter had something dreadfully wrong with her. A lot of times back in those days, demon possession was actually blamed for a physical ailment. But we don't know. The the text tells us it's demon possession. The point is something was wrong with her daughter something terribly wrong and she was desperate to get help for her daughter like any one of your moms sitting out here right now how far would you go for your kids and as a side note in my head when i became a dad the first time my oldest daughter i thought that once they got old enough i could cross the goal line spike the ball Woo-hoo, i'm done no oh, oh, no it never stops It just keeps going on and on and on. No disrespect, girls, but you seem to know we're going to eat sometimes. We'll sit on the porch and just be visiting. Also, we start eating. Here they all come. No, I'm just kidding. I love when my girls come over. She says, have mercy on me, which echoes the cry of the blind men back in chapter 9, verse 27. She said, have mercy. Those blind men were Jewish. And they use the same title she does, Son of David. I want you to know that is a distinctively Jewish designation for the Messiah. She recognizes who He is. Now here's this Gentile woman calling Him Son of David. She has recognized Jesus as a Messiah which over Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the scribes, all the religious elite, failed to do. Can you see the stark contrast that's being painted here in Scripture? Now this seems kind of cold at first. We we're told that He did not answer her. Now, what do the disciples say? I'm just going to paraphrase. Get her out of here. Just do what she wants, man. She keeps shouting at us. She's coming a little bit of embarrassment. But He didn't answer her. Have you wondered why sometimes it seems like God doesn't answer your prayer or delays in doing so? I would say to you, more than likely, he is testing you to see how much you really need him. Or are you going to keep going after him? He doesn't answer right away. You just go and do something yourself. And that's when I get in trouble. I'm not patient. I want it now. I want it yesterday. But it's obvious this woman was not going to take silence for an answer. And that begs the question, do we really believe in the power of prayer? Is this something that we do to check off the box? I made a remark about this a few weeks ago about, we'll say, well, the least thing
0: I can do is pray.
1: No, the most important thing, the first thing you should do is pray. But do we really believe it's going to work? Do we pray then we just quit and start looking for other solutions? We tend to be practical atheists. And what I mean by that, we pray only because we're willing to try anything. God, I try everything. But have you ever been guilty of saying this? It's a rhetorical question you don't have to answer. Raise your hand. Have you ever said to somebody, well, I've tried all this, but now I pray. Our church will say, we've done all this, but now we're going to pray. We have that backwards, don't we? We need to pray first.
0: Seek Him for the answer and be patient. But this woman was not going to go away. She knew that Jesus was her only hope. He was not just a possibility. She had already tried
1: everything else, and the disciples were trying to get rid of her. She's becoming bothersome, and as I said, an embarrassment. But, like I said, don't be too hard on them. He's just saying, deal with what she wants, or just leave us alone. Just give her what she wants. Jesus responds back by saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I don't know if he's... At first, I think he's speaking right to the disciples. He said that same exact thing when he sent out the twelve to preach, heal, raise the dead, and cast out demons. And you see that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Perhaps Jesus replied according to the stereotypic Jewish understanding of the title, Son of David. Perhaps he wanted to see what kind of belief this woman really did have. Whatever the case may be, the point is she persisted and would not take no for an answer. Look what she does upon hearing that. But she came and began to bow down. Some will translate that kneel down. That's an act of worship.
0: Before him saying, Lord, help me. She dropped the formality
1: of all the titles. Her prayer is now worship and pleading. Jesus is her only hope. It's Jesus or nothing because there is no plan B. As she worships, she is pleading. Have you ever pleaded with
0: God when you worship? Asking God, please, help me. Please
1: send a revival to this nation. Outright And the response may be shocking when we first read it. He said it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, the Jewish people back in that day were referred to Gentiles as dogs in a condescending way. Scavengers, not really having a home. But the form in the Greek really renders it as a small puppy or a dog. Now, children here are obviously a reference to the Jews. Jesus' first mission was to the Jews. You go back to Genesis 12, the promises made through Abraham. Through his seed, all nations would be blessed. The Jews were to take God's message out into the world. Why would he give this Gentile woman anything? I think he was testing her faith. But look at the answer. She doesn't contradict what he says. In fact, she makes... Further comment upon that. Look what she says. Even the dog's feed on the crumbs which fall from the Master's table. Look how humble she is. She identifies herself as the dog. Not worthy to come to the Master's table. Not asking for a meal, but begging only for the crumbs. She is casting herself as someone who is totally
0: unworthy of His mercy and His love and help. She's acknowledging Him as her only hope, her only source of hope. She's unworthy of His
1: love His grace and mercy. She just, she won't. She just keeps pleading, Lord, help me. And look at the final response in verse 28. O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. The same thing happened in Saturian. Another non-Jew in chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Like the centurion's servant, this woman's daughter was healed without Jesus even seeing her. In that moment, she was healed. Was this the kind of faith Jesus was looking for in Israel but could never find it? Here's a Gentile, Canaanite woman hearing who Jesus is, casting
0: herself totally as an unworthy person and asking Him to help her. Contrast that with the religious elite in Jerusalem calling Jesus a the
1: Messiah They put themselves out. They didn't like that because he didn't measure up to what they thought the Messiah
0: was going to be. If we're not careful, we'll go right the same road. We'll fairly recognize him when he shows up. As we look at this text overall, We can claim
1: some traits of a godly mother. First of all, you see that a godly mother does not need a name, a reputation. This woman in the story, she's poor. She's not looking for any recognition. She's an outcast. She's a Canaanite Gentile. She's never given the name. We never know her name in the story, but here we are 2,000 plus years later after the story and we're reading about her. We have no idea what her name is. She's elevated among the greats. So have this kind of faith that she had in Jesus. A godly mother is empowered by love. In this story, you see her love is more powerful than any of her fear or shame. It's more powerful than all of her hardship or sacrifice combined. She would not leave anything undone
0: to help her daughter. Godly mother overcomes all barriers. She overcame the wall,
1: being inferior. She was a woman. She crossed the sea of anonymity. She was a Gentile speaking to a Jew, and she climbed the mountain of diversity. She was a Canaanite, which by definition would be the enemy of the Jew. A godly mother is armed with determination. She conquered the test of patience in divine silence, because Jesus would not answer her. She didn't go away. She persisted. She conquered the test of doubt and discouragement. Disciples wanted to send her away, but she refused. godly mother conquers the test of rejection. Jesus tells, I was only sent to find the lost sheep of Israel. And the godly mother conquered the test of humbleness. It's not right to throw... The children's bread to the dogs. Yes, but even the dogs have to eat from the crumbs from the master's table. Godly mother knows the power of prayer. She acknowledged the lordship of Jesus. She lowered herself. She knelt down in front of him crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, help me. She knew from whom she'd get the answer for her great need. The Messiah, the son of David. Godly mother would admit that she could not manage her life without God's help. You see her do this and that story. And she confessed that she needed God personally. Godly mother knows her own spiritual need. She admitted that she was unworthy being a sinner before God. And Godly mother is humble enough to acknowledge her hopelessness with God. The dog in the table reference. Julia asked for grace and mercy at the master's table. She wasn't asking for a meal, she was simply asking for crumbs. And lastly, I will tell you a godly mother triumphs because of her faith. She received a great commendation from Christ Himself Your faith is great.
0: She received great approval. Jesus told her, It shall be done as you wish. And she received a great miracle. At that moment, immediately, her daughter was healed. Isn't it ironic that here we are looking at a trace of a godly mother
1: from somebody back in that time in that context would be the last person anyone would look for such a
0: thing? A Canaanite Gentile woman. And yet, we are to have faith like I want you to realize that the world looks at you, looks at me, looks at this church. It measures us. What could they possibly do to make any difference? With God, all things are possible. You never know what change you can make until you let God use you to stand up and the situation that we find ourselves in the country today, I will simply say this. We have to stand up and declare the truth. We can't afford to be silent. This unnamed woman is
1: forever honored in the pages of Scripture. She leaned on Jesus in time
0: of great need. She loved her daughter so much that she went right to the source. The question for you this morning do you know Jesus? Not here, but here. Perhaps you've given your life to Christ. You've, con- you've confessed and you repented from your sins and gave your life to
1: Him. And you follow that with baptism. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is a public declaration of you dying to yourself raised as a new creation, a new creature by the power of the Holy Spirit.
0: But once you do that, that's not the end of the journey. That's just the beginning. We need to be seeking God every single day like she did here. Because we have to realize that God is the only one who can save us. If we've learned anything over the last few years, If
1: we're putting our hope in our government, our elected officials, we're putting our hope in the wrong thing. We should have laws and policies. Of course we should, but if we only do policies and laws without going to the true source of hope, it's going to end up coming
0: down once again. He is the only source of hope. There is no plan B. This is it. The guy at work told me the other day, Tim, I can't believe how a loving
1: and merciful God would send anyone to hell. I said, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Look what he's done. He's put every roadblock up of manageable to keep you from going. So much so that he sent his son to tie and take your place. He's reaching out to you even now as I speak to you. All the witnesses that you've heard, all the gospel messages you've heard, the church, the Bible, I can go on and on and on. But here's what it is. It comes down to this. It has to be your call. It has to be your faith. Not your parents, not your friends,
0: but yours. You have to make that choice. And let me tell you, when you make that choice, He will cleanse
1: you. All your sins are forgiven. All righteousness will take it away, and He'll begin to work on you. And He'll take you places and do things with you that you thought were never possible. I want to share something, but please, I'm sharing it just to let you know my experience. Don't look, don't look at me. This is what God did in my if you would have met me
0: back when I was like 32, I would sit in the furthest corner, not talk to anybody. I wouldn't. You guys look at me, yeah, okay, I can't believe that. It's true. When I first
1: gave my life to Christ, the pastor said, We need someone to make announcements. Okay, I'll do that. And I was so nervous doing that. I don't want to mispronounce anybody's name, make anybody upset or mad. And he sat. There was a chair right here where he sat. No one else could hear him make remarks. He was heckling me. Hey, brother, you're back of your neck's turning red. Hey, I don't think you pronounced that right. Looking back, I know what he was doing. I didn't see it. My point being, the last thing I ended up I'd do in my life is stand in the pulpit and preach Sunday after Sunday. That was the last thing from my mind. If you had told me I would move to Texas, give my life to Christ, marry a girl from a small town I never even heard of, actually made fun of the town, now I live there. I would have probably cussed you out and ran the other way because I didn't have Christ in my life. I want to encourage you. Where you're sitting at now, God may be asking you to do something and everything inside of you is saying it's impossible. He's not looking for the brightest, look at me. He's not looking for the most best looking people, look at me. But he's looking for faithful people in spite of every obstacle the world throws in front of them. They still say, I will put my faith in Christ. Because you see, every standard out there, they try to define you by. They try to split us up into groups. All that goes away at the foot of of the cross of Christ. There is no distinction in the church. We're all sinners saved by grace. We all have equal footing. The only thing I have to answer for, I have more accountability because I'm a pastor. I don't have any
0: more standing towards him. You can go to him just like I can. You know, as I look back at this, I think of my own mom, which is one reason I'm standing here. I know there was many nights that she prayed for me. Little did she know I would become a Baptist preacher. Maybe she would have changed the prayer a little bit, but she's gone to be with the Lord now. Now, being a parent, I understand. It's kind of funny how that works, isn't it? You're a teenager, you don't think your parents know anything, and you become a parent, and go, aha, they're pretty smart people. I've had one of my daughters ask me, Dad, how'd y'all do it? No secret, we just got up and did it. <laughs> See, Jesus is the answer that everybody's looking for, but not everybody's ready to recognize that. And take this offer,
1: Jesus said to himself the best in John fourteen six He says, "I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me
0: If you've never given your life to Christ, I would invite you to do that today First of all, we're talking about eternity." Talking about having a relationship with a God who created everything you see,
1: who loves you so much that I cannot, I can't even begin to even describe it. It's so big. The English language fails. It's like the old hymn, "The Love of God." If were the oceans were filled with ink and the sky of parchment made, and every man a scribe on earth, take the quail and, and write on the sky, they would drain the oceans dry of ink
0: trying to write the love of God on the sky and I think there's a mother who's been praying for you and always will I cannot think of a better way to honor
1: her on Mother's Day than to finally make that choice and you will not find a more sympathetic loving group of people than right here Perhaps you've done that one day, but things have gotten away. You pray only when it's convenient or when you're in trouble because you're always
0: chasing plan B. But here's the thing with plan B, it never pans out. At the end of the day, you end up with more damage than what you started with. And that's what the problem is with drugs, and alcoholism, and all the you get that, everything's
1: fine. All your problems go away, but in the morning they're all there. And depending on what you do that night, you could even have more
0: problems. That's what we tend to do. I think it comes down to this. I'm going to close with this remark. Like I said last week, we do not want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to admit that we did something wrong and apologize. I'm the same way. But do please hear me. If you don't hear nothing else this morning, hear this please don't let that pride keep you from
1: spending eternity with God. That's a huge price to pay because you want to acknowledge what everybody else in God knows. You ever, you ever thought of that? God knows everything you've done,
0: what you're thinking, and yet in spite of that knowledge, He still loves you, He still wants you to come to Him. In spite of everything He knows. How many
1: friends do you have if they really knew the true you and some things you've done would still be your friend today? Or How many friends can you call at 3 o'clock in the morning because you've done something and they'll come running? What I mean by that is this. I have brothers in the faith that if I decide to do something stupid, get drunk, get arrested for DUI, I could call them and get me out of jail, but I better believe it come the next day they'll be talking to me going, what's going on? That's people
0: like that you need in your life. That's what being a brother and sister in Christ is really all about. Being there for each other. Encouraging one another. Rejoicing. And at times, weeping. Get through life together. Following Christ, our Lord and Savior. Heavenly Father,
1: we thank You for this morning. I thank You for all the moms in attendance here, physically, but those who are watching. And Father, I ask a special blessing be upon them this day. I ask right now they would feel your loving arms of peace and love wrap around them. And Father, I pray for those who are hearing your voice and right now there's a tug of war going on what they should do. And Father, I pray that you would knock down every wall, break every chain that's keeping them away from following you, getting into a deeper relationship with you, whatever the case may be. Father, we desperately need you. You have the answer. No one else around here has the answer. Only you do. You're the source of life. You're the source of every good blessing we have in our lives.
0: Father, you have blessed us so tremendously. Father, we, we seek your face. We seek your wisdom and your discernment. May your Holy Spirit continue your move and speak to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please?